It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's our first time reuniting in a week. I just stayed at the beach. Had a conference in Wilmington. And by the way, we're recording on Thursday morning. Yesterday, I conducted a training with our colleague Christy Jones down at the Head Start conference. But yeah, this rough driving back yesterday from the beach. Yeah, I know. The other day I texted you. I was like, hey, can you get on this phone call with me? And you respond an hour later after I've already called the person and said, sorry, I was surfing. <laughs> I surf twice a day. Uh, except yesterday. It was flat yesterday, but surfed. I stand up paddleboard. I mean, I just, I got a lot of work. Kind of an athlete. In between, learned a new program on how to edit podcasts. So might not feel it this episode, but next episode, we're learning some tricks here of how to figure out the volume. And so I got a lot done. It was great. Glad to be back, though. Definitely nothing going on in the building this week. A lot of Republicans are down in Orlando for the ALEC conference. Even though there wasn't any action in the General Assembly, that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of news in NC poll, and we're here for it. Let's take it all the way back to last Thursday afternoon. Mm. We'd already recorded the podcast. There's been rumor and confirmation that there was some sort of casino legislation slash deal being worked out between the chambers. And then on Thursday afternoon, a draft of that legislation emerged. The draft starts in the Senate among the leadership there. We assume staff. It's forwarded over to Speaker Tim Moore's office for his staff to review. Don't want you to think there's any legislation that has been filed yet. There's not a bill number, but we expect that that will be filed once there comes Uh, an agreement. Now, I imagine, Sky, that this draft really needs to be taken to the Republican caucus, because this is a Republican caucus that is not on the same page on all issues, especially as it pertains to gambling. Right. Speaker Moore said that there had been a lot of concepts talked about within the caucus, but they hadn't seen that draft. So he was happy to have a draft of the legislation. What we do know is that there are three locations that they're looking at. This is a brick and mortar casino. Anson County, which is down in the Sand Hills area of the state. Nash County, Representative Alan Chesser's district, and Rockingham County, of course, that is the district of Senator Phil Berger. A fourth casino could be authorized by the Lumbee Indian tribe. Speaker Moore said that he didn't think that it was fully dependent on federal legislation for the Lumbees to get a casino. We do believe that even though there will be legislation filed, This ends up in the budget, right? It's been talked about that this could be in the final version of the budget, but it may not. So that happened Thursday afternoon. On Friday, Governor Cooper vetoed another bill, and that is a charter school bill. So now there's two charter school bills that I believe he vetoed. And I just looked on the NCLEG website. They have a really nice 
uh, layout on the bills and laws page where it'll show you all of the different vetoes um, since the veto was created in North Carolina. And currently, the General Assembly is sitting on six vetoed bills, but the amount of vetoes this session is now up to 14. News continues to roll out in the aftermath of the announcement that Speaker Tim Moore is not running for re-election as Speaker of the House in 2025. We know that the declared candidates up until this week was Representative John Bell, the Majority Leader, and Representative Destin Hall, the Rules Chairman. Uh, But this week, media reports indicated that two major candidates, they are running for Speaker of the House for the 2025-26 biennium. One of those candidates, Representative Jason Sane, he is the big chair of the appropriations process on the House side. He said he's considering it. And Representative Keith Kidwell, the chair of the Freedom Caucus in the House, said he is definitely in the race. There have been a lot of questions about, especially Representative Keith Kidwell. You know, he controls what, about a dozen to 20 votes or so, depending on how disciplined you think that Freedom Caucus is. But, you know, uh, I had someone call me this week and say, does he really think he can be speaker? And one, I don't know what Representative Kidwell thinks. Don't pretend to live inside his head. But I do know this, that anyone who declares for the speaker's race, you are putting yourself in a position to bargain for some sort of positioning in the General Assembly for that 2025-26 session. So this is how it plays out. Representative Kidwell says, I'm putting my hat in the ring and I've got the Freedom Caucus that's going to support me for Speaker of the House. Don't know if that's true or not. I'm just putting it out there as a hypothetical. Chances are that Representative Kidwell has heard from Majority Leader Bell this week. He has heard from Rules Chairman Hall this week. He has heard maybe even from Representative Sane this week. And the question to Representative Kidwell is, what do you want for you to swing your supporters to me? So it could be that Representative Kidwell wants his whip position back. It could be that he wants to be senior finance chair again. It could be he wants legislation guaranteed that it's going to move. Whatever the case may be, it's a good bargaining position for anyone to be in if they declare for speaker. Now, it could cut both ways. You stay in the race too long, you back the wrong person, you could find yourself in the basement of the caucus. I imagine we'll hear more about that over the coming months. Yeah, it is very early. Mm -hmm. Right now, I believe the race is between Leader Bell, Representative Hall, and I will put Sane in the mix as well. Those three, it comes down to them. And I think, this is my prediction, I think they figure it out among the three of them. Speaking of your predictions, on Monday, former Senator Deanna Ballard announced that she is going to be running for lieutenant governor, and you tweeted about it. I did. Got a lot of attention. I think it's so interesting that she's in the race, especially with Representative Jeffrey Elmore, also in the race, and we had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. 
both from generally the same area of the state. He's from Wilkes County. She's from Watauga County. Both focus their work on education issues. Senator Ballard, before she lost the primary last cycle, definitely the go-to on NC Ed issues. And then it's also a classic matchup between the Senate, Senator Ballard, and the House, Representative Elmore. And I just think it makes it so interesting. Now, I tweeted this out this week, and I said, I think this field comes down to Ballard versus Elmore because of the dynamic that I just described. Now, I had a lot of folks say, hey, you're not counting, you know, Hal Weatherman, who's out there. He's got a hundred county strategy where he's got a rap bus and he's visiting every county. He's visited over 80 counties so far. And they're like, you, you, you got to give this guy some credit. Now, look, I don't really know Mr. Weatherman that well. I, I have met him a couple times when he was on staff for uh, Dan Forrest. But look, this could come down to how running an old school 100 county strategy and somehow he just takes hold and he's the lieutenant governor nominee. But old school politicking hasn't really found a lot of victories recently. If it had, I think we'd be looking at uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest as governor. We'd be looking at Lieutenant Governor Walter Dalton as governor. It really comes down to raising a lot of money and then spending that money in the last weeks of the campaign. But anyway, the Lieutenant Governor's race on the GOP side, that is the race to watch. On Wednesday, the story of the day was about Medicaid expansion. DHHS announced that it was preparing Medicaid expansion to go live on October 1st with one particular glitch. They need a budget passed. And uh, as we sit here on a Thursday, doesn't look like we're making much progress on the budget. Now, for this October 1 go live on Medicaid expansion, I've heard that we have to have a budget done by September 1st. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't know if the General Assembly is on that timeline or not. We've heard, Sky, that the General Assembly may wait on a budget until September to get the savings that uh, comes with not having a budget in place. But Secretary Kinsley did say in the media that he has made the leadership aware of this movement. So it sounds like maybe they have endorsed him going ahead and moving forward. But we'll see. All right, we got some sad news this week in NC Poll. We learned that North Carolina Secretary of State Elaine Marshall lost her husband, Tommy Bunn, this week after a brain injury. I read his obituary. I really didn't know Mr. Bunn. We've had Secretary Marshall on the podcast, but read his obituary. I didn't realize that he was such a towering figure in ag policy here in North Carolina and actually across the nation, especially as it pertained to uh, tobacco farming. Uh, But our condolences to Secretary Marshall and uh, Mr. Bunn's family and friends. We are sorry for your loss and we are thinking of you. This week, we talked to Representative Jeff Zinger about a really heartwarming story growing up in a single mother household and how he has used the way he grew up and what he learned throughout his life in the way that he legislates. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Jeff Singer, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. We've been looking forward to it. Been a little delayed, but we're all here. We made it. Tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district's special? What I like about my district, what I think makes it special, it's literally a cross-section of the state. Western side of Forsyth County, it's Louisville, Clements. It's got part of Winston-Salem in it. And it's really, in my opinion, it's a cross-section of just about everything we have in North Carolina. I've got rural. I've got some communities that are very urban. I've got everything in between. Did you grow up in the area? I grew up in Baltimore. Okay. Yep. I grew up in Baltimore. I... um, I'm the oldest of three kids. I came out of a single-parent household. Uh, My father and uh, mom split up when I was nine years old. Mm. Extremely difficult childhood. Um, We we lacked everything. That was 19... Interesting enough, that was 1973, August of 73. Mm. So we're coming up on 50 years. And um, I can remember all of that going down like it was yesterday. It was very bitter, ugly, nasty situation and um you know i had to i remember my grandfather telling me the night the couple days later he said listen i was nine years old he said you're gonna have to you're gonna have to grow up Hmm. you're gonna have to be the man of the house your mom's gonna need you had no idea what he meant but you know i got my first job when i was 12 i knew really quickly if there if i was gonna have anything I had to work for it. And that was, you know, just the way it was. My father would drop in and out of my life uh, for about the first five years, four years. And every time he stepped in, he'd be gone for four or five months and then he'd show up. And it was like he just threw a grenade into our lives. So when I was 13, my mo- I came home one night. Uh, I was at someplace uh, for school and I came home. I was in, I guess I was probably in eighth grade. My mom is <clears throat> crying another bomb has kind of drawn when i say bomb it was usually financial mm-hmm. which meant we were gonna suffer and uh i just called him up and said you know this is this is enough and so i just took the bull by the horns and said we're, we're done mm-hmm. and um it will life will be a whole lot easier for us if you're just gone and um and that was the end the end have you ever saw him one time not to speak to him, I was just, I was in an area where he was, and I was like, oh, there he is. Hmm. And that was it. Do you think he knows you're a legislator in North Carolina? No, he, I just got word recently, he passed in February. Hmm. And um, I don't even think there was a funeral for him. I mean, it was just, he, he his life was a wreck. Mm-hmm. A disaster. And so it's kind of interesting, because I heard, I really felt sorry for him, because he, um, the greatest joy in my entire life is being a dad mm-hmm. and I have four kids and I will take the rest of the time and tell you about my kids if you want, but <laughs> I, I so cherish being a dad. And so I kind of mourned and was like, I can't believe that anybody wouldn't want this. And he's got, you know, six grandchildren, 
seven grandchildren he's never met. And so anyway, um, so that time really growing up was a very hard struggle. We struggled all the time. I got my first job when I was 12 and um, I've worked ever since. And so um, that really shaped me into be a very, um, I'd say probably dogmatic. Mm -hmm. I don't like stuff to get in my way. I don't like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I persevere. I continue to push. I can take whatever shots you throw at me, which has served me well in business. It's served me even better in politics. I bet. Let me ask you about the city of Baltimore. It sounds like you came from a tough family, but one of the toughest cities in America yep. is Baltimore. There's the, you and I talked before we turned on the microphones. We've watched The Wire on <laughs> HBO. There's the Randy Newman song, Baltimore, which I think I've heard aptly describes Baltimore. Can you talk about the city you grew up in? Yes. Yeah, so I, I actually lived in Towson in the, in the suburbs in 1985. Um, I told you I was really aggressive, dogmatic and stuff. I bought a house when I was 21 years old. Wow. <laughs> And I moved into Fells Point, which is where Homicide, uh, that show, if you remember, it was was filmed. And at that time, it was the oldest operating seaport in the country. And it was it was now it's a, a really spectacular. But at that time, they still had boxcars in the thing. I remember when I moved in, my mom was freaking out. It was in October. I moved in. And that night that I moved in, one of the local weathermen got arrested on my street corner. Really? For soliciting a prostitute. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so me being the compassionate, caring son called my mom and said, hey, watch the 11 o'clock news tonight. I think my house is in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, not just the weather. Right. But when I went down there, you know, I, because of the struggle we had, I've always been very, or I, it, it made me to be sensitive to people's stories. And so one of the things I really like to do is to get to know people and to hear their story where they come mm -hmm. from, which is one of the reasons why I really, I like your podcast Thank because you. you're doing that. Yeah. But you know, the, the thing that happens is people make so many assumptions. I've had people make all kinds of assumptions about me and I'm just like, good grief. I wish I'd had it that good. Or <laughs> right. I wish, you know, <laughs> right. and, and so I went into the city. I started working with teenagers immediately when I moved in, I met we had, where I was, there was a lot of throwaway kids. They called them teen prostitutes and, and um, different stuff. And so they'd come to my house and hang out. I had a video arcade games that I had gotten that my roommate and I wired them. So they didn't take any money. Okay. And so then when we came home at night, there'd be like 40 kids or 30 kids, I should say waiting. Yeah. And we would hang out with them and um, just, just love them and just have fun with them. And they didn't even know how to have fun. I mean, we, we made up a game that was two dimensional tag and that you could climb on this, this guy wire for a telephone pole and you could run up the side of this building, flip up on the roof and run across to the other side and go down. Yeah. And I mean, it was just a blast anyway. Then um, <clears throat> I got involved with young life because I needed help and they were so floored of what I was doing. They said, listen, anything you want. And so then I went on to found young life, Baltimore city, which is still going on now. And we did, I did that for 13 years. And in the midst of that, uh, my wife and I got married, um, and she lived with me. At, we got married about eight years before I left the city, so she was all in with me. But I got to see up close and personal every aspect of Baltimore City. I've been in every neighborhood. I, I saw the social programs. I've seen it all, which gives me an interesting perspective because I think in the political world, a lot of folks think only Democrats understand all that stuff. Well, no, I, I know it up close and personal. Mm -hmm. I have seen it. I know I've been to the projects. We've 
you know, I was a victim of crime 19 times in 13 years. I've seen it all. So anyway, that just helps give me a perspective. And so from a political standpoint, I'm extremely conservative, but at the same time, I I want to solve problems because I understand the impact that it's having. What I have seen is the failure of government and the failure of these programs and, and, and what it does to people and how it ruins them and how it destroys their lives and how it traps them. That, that has really helped shape me some in terms of my thinking. To back up a little bit, you said you were nine when your parents were divorced and your grandpa told you you were going to have to grow up. How old were your siblings at that time? And can you talk about your relationship with them? Yeah. So my, um, my brother was seven and my sister was, I guess, three. Mm-hmm. And so um, my brother has, um, he now lives in Pennsylvania and we kind of have a, a, a pretty distant relationship. Mm-hmm. My sister and I talk almost every day mm-hmm. and um, she lives on the Eastern shore, Maryland. You know, the thing that was different for, for me to, to the two of them, I kind of knew everything that was going on. In yeah. fact, I knew more about what was going on than either of my parents thought I knew. I kind of had to digest that and understand that. And I remember, you know, divorce is devastating to kids. It's just devastating. And I remember, it's really common right now in our society. But in 1973, the only other boy that was in a single parent household was in my class and his dad had died. And I remember um, a couple of years later, when we were going through it, thinking, you know, it would have been easier for me if a parent had died because there had been closure. So anyway, that was uh, that was just an intense time. And the crazy part is, is by the time I got to high school, half my friends, yeah. their families were, were, were falling apart. I have to assume that you were or are very close to your mother. No, we have a tough relationship. My mom has struggled. And I'm not going to tell her to listen to this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but she has struggled with all kinds of mental illness. And mm-hmm. a lot of it came just from the devastating pressure of having to raise three kids all, yeah. you know, out of nowhere. And, um, you know, she worked three jobs uh, to just help us get by. I worked, I had a paper route and my first job and I saved up enough money. And for a couple of years on the 15th of the month, I would loan my mom a couple hundred dollars wow. and then she would pay me on the first of the month and then I'd loan it back to her on the 15th and it just went back and forth because that was the margin that we needed and you know there's crazy things that you know like I cannot eat craft macaroni and cheese oh really too much of it as oh a I've kid. had my quota <laughs> and my kids they didn't understand but whenever my wife and I were going out and they had to make dinner for themselves they'd be like dad we're having macaroni and cheese tonight and I'm like you make sure you eat it all we <laughs> done with it so what brought you to North Carolina? When we fled. So I was in the city for 13 years. My son comes along. I had, at that point, I had stopped doing Young Life staff. I started a construction business there, and I was renovating historic homes. The home that I lived in in Fells Point was rebuilt in 1853, and I renovated the whole thing while I was on staff. We had a rooftop deck. I looked across the water at Fort McHenry. That was really starting to take off, and my son came along, and at that point... The city had just kind of wore me out. I was just at a point where I was like, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. And so my wife is incredible. You guys get to meet her, you realize that, you know, you've got the lesser of the two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she just said to me, we were kind of struggling about what we we're going to do. And she said, well, listen, you've been basically self-employed so far. Let's pick a place where we want to move to, where we want to raise our family. You'll figure it out. So that's pretty gutsy. 
So we ended up, we had a friend that lived in Winston-Salem. We came by and visited him in um, Labor Day in 1996. And they showed us around Winston, and he said, they were like, you really need to come here. There's opportunity, great life. And at that, Winston was a lot different. It's about half the number of people then than there are now. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, we'll do it. I had a house to sell that I was renovating. I sold that. We sold our house. We dropped in. We moved in October 23rd, 1997, and we were still in the same house. Yeah. And since then, we had three more kids and raised them there. And they're up. They're all. They're all out of the house. They're doing great. Your decision to get into politics. When did that occur? So in um, two thousand and two or two thousand and one, Wachovia and First Union merged. I had a custom home building business, and we were rolling. And when they merged, they moved seven thousand white collar jobs to Charlotte. They crushed the home building market right. in Winston. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my, I've got to have some eggs in a different basket. So I bought a, bu- I bought a prop- piece of property in our town. I was going to put up an office building to lease it out. I did, had to go through a zoning change. And so I went ahead and I did that. And the day after it was approved by the council, the chairman of the planning board came to me and said, we would really like to have a guy like you on the planning board. So I got appointed to the planning board. Then I became chairman of the planning board. The economy turned around there, and my business was exploding, so I stepped away. Then the economy crashed. What year is that? 2009 is when it hit me. It did crash. It hit me. (laughs) Um, And in 2011, there was going to be four open spots for council, and I had people that I had served with came to me and said, we want you to run. I'm like, listen, I'm just trying to survive right now. Uh, One guy that was on the planning board after I had, I mean, like a dozen people. He came to me and he said, listen, I know that you're stretched the limit financially. I know that you're going to be, you will persevere and you're going to be okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that this, that you get elected. He said, we need people like you there. So I got elected. I ended up running for four times. And, uh, the last after, when I decided not to run for reelection, we had the election and, and then there's like a, a month long period that you, uh, are still on the council but the new people haven't sworn in. So a week after that election, I get a phone call from a mayor of a neighboring town. Hey, Jeff, would you consider running for another office? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, a state office. And I was like, well, I, I guess I would. So um, there's a good time. My kids were all leaving the house. And so then a, a contractor of mine is the head of the GOP out in Yakin County. He's a, got a big electrical contracting company. And he, he called me, he said, Hey, Jeff, there's a bunch of people calling me asking about you. Is there something I need to know? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and then a couple of days later, Senator Kravitz called me and said, Deborah Conrad's going to step down. We want you to run. Yeah. And so we, um, we jumped in, and it's really a good thing that I didn't know what I was getting into because <laughs> my election was insane. <laughs> was, it, is that a, was it a tough primary? The, there was no primary, but they... They had a judge. This is back when we're all these court cases. If they had a judge redraw the district two weeks before I filed. What year are we talking here? We're talking three years ago. So, okay. um, and, uh, 2020, 2020. Yeah. It was a presidential election year. And so we, uh, they redrew it because they wanted to go blue. They spent a million and a half dollars against me. I was, we knocked on thousands of doors. Um, Ted Budd, Senator Budd now, we raised our kids together. He's, they're great friends of ours. And um, 
he was congressman at that point, and so he his, he got involved. I mean, we had everybody. It was full. We weren't supposed to win. It was so bad was it that when I got introduced to the first caucus meeting that I attended, the Speaker of the House introduced me as Representative Dead Man Walking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it? he knew your victim of crime history. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So you weren't supposed to be here. And I assume he was saying you're probably not going to be here for long. Is that it? No, I think it, it, it's gotten a little bit. Last last race was tough, um, yeah. but not as tough. And um, just starting to get more, you know, more, more well known. I hope to be here for, for a while. But, you know, I've got plenty of opportunities to do things besides this. But I feel like I can contribute and I bring a great perspective. And so... Um, I'm in. Let's talk about your perspective. What started this whole conversation about you coming on the podcast was Sky and I were in a committee and Representative Garland Pierce and Representative Dennis Rydell were putting forward a bill about shared custody. And you told your story about your dad, but you said something in that committee that got my attention. You said some, it was about shared custody. You said sometimes shared custody is not a good thing. And you talked about the impact your dad's absence had and the toxicity that he brought to your family life. Can you talk more about how your childhood has informed you as a legislator? So, and I saw a lot of this in the city too, in addition to my experience, but you know, there's a certain mentality where people will say uh, or think because you're a father or because you're a mother, I've seen it in both sides, you should be 50% involved. Well, that may be true if both of them want to be a mother, if both of them want to be a father, if both of them, or don't, you know, being a dad is the greatest thing in the world, but it is something that you have to think through. Like it doesn't happen. Like you have to, to exercise, you know, how are you going to guide these folks? And so I saw situations where there were people that, I mean, they were a disaster. Oh, but you need to spend some time with your kid. (laughs) Really? Are you sure? Right. And um, and and keep in mind, you know, I I, I will tell you, if if you look at all of our social issues, the problem is fatherless homes. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we need to fix that. But what we're not happening because it's happened generation after generation to generation, we're raising adult boys, and that and 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 that is what's causing tremendous amount of breakdown. So when they, he was saying that, I appreciated his heart, uh, but I I was like, you know, it would have been terrible for me if at the rest of the time, you know, that was five years until I turned 18. If I was forced to go be with this man, mm-hmm. he was a pathetic example. I was a pawn for the five years prior to that in the divorce. And so that's why I was like, mm, yes, but no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And did that experience shape or I guess implore you to deal with the youth or invite youth in your neighborhood to come into your house how did that happen you guys have probably noticed i can talk to anybody mm-hmm. and so i just would see kids and when i got when i moved in hey how are you yeah what's your name you know i just talked to them and then i started to, to meet more of them and then i i could see these this huge void in their lives their lives were wrecks and um i remember i give you two this one young girl her name was mary um and she was a um, a teenage prostitute and she's sweet sweet kid but she was just in a horrific situation and there was no way out and so she would come around there was another boy his nickname was wigs 
he was eight years old. His father was a raging alcoholic, and he had a shushan box. And at eight years old, he was bringing home a couple of hundred, two hundred fifty dollars a week, shining shoes and supporting his family, mm-hmm. and making up for. And they were living in rough, rough stuff. And so my heart just kind of broke for them. And so I was like, well, you know what? I'm single. I'm here. My roommate and I just said, hey, I'm just gonna love on these kids. Here's what's really fascinating. I got texts from some of these guys on Father's Day. Wow. They're 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 45 years old now. You know, saying. We're so thankful for you. And so you just don't know um, how much impact that you can have yeah. by just just caring. Yeah. And so it, um, it's, it's kind of interesting because I have my family, but then I kind of have this, this other little family, and it's, and it's some of these kids. And so I would like to say that they're all doing great. They're not. Some of them are doing better than others. But there's a number of them that know when the chips are down, you can call Jeff. And they're spread out all over the country now. You mentioned earlier you're a conservative that has compassion. Folks typecast you because you're successful in business. You've been successful in politics. You do understand that you do bring a unique perspective as a conservative. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not everyone is on your message about this. Do you find yourself in interesting conversations with your conservative colleagues when you're talking about poverty, when you're talking about children Mm -hmm. who need adults in their life? I spend most of my time... Not just with my colleagues, but um, even when I'm out in my community and stuff and when I go to meeting is educating people. You know, a lot of times people just don't know what they don't know. And so um, particularly when we talk about some of this stuff, I can uh, with the with the urban issues, I can um, say, OK, well, let me, let me explain to you. This is how it works and this is how it happens. And this is the impact of what that does and this is how it's spiraling out of control and so I can start to speak to some of that stuff you know for instance right now I've been working on and the speaker's office has really helped me with this but I've got a workforce housing bill and part of it I think the way it's going to I'm hoping it's going to end up in the budget the way it's going to work but all of that was designed on a project I did for Hopkins Hospital years ago for their community to help people that are doing all the right things just not making a ton of money. They're responsible. They're they're you know stable. They're and so we put people into houses in a home ownership standpoint. Never thought they would be in houses, yeah. but you know helping to say hey listen, and I'm in the house. Listen, I've built stuff. I built palaces, mm-hmm. but you know at the end of the day, someone has to have a roof of their head, right? Okay. And so um so anyway, so to to your point is I spend a lot of time just educating people. And what's great is is the more. My colleagues get to know me, and even my supporters and, and people in my community, they're like, wow. Uh, I was just at an event the other night at home that was pretty much all Democrats. Okay. And there was Democrats that were really involved in some of the social things in downtown Winston. And we just had an absolutely awesome, like, two-hour conversation. And now their guys are emailing me saying, man, that was really great. Because we, we can find what we... We can, we can talk about what we have in common, and then I can bring to them the perspective of, listen, I want to find solutions. Just because we have a program, it does not mean that it fixes anything. It just makes us feel good. <laughs> that's, that's so true. Talking a little bit, kind of tying this all together, when you were 
operating Young Life in Baltimore. How did you decide to get into home building? So when I so I bought that house um, down there and I renovated the whole thing myself. When I I mentioned my grandfather earlier, I would spend my summers in Pennsylvania with my grandfather. It gave my mom kind of a break, mm. and. Um, he was a rural man, jack of all trades, and you never you never paid somebody to do something. If, if you didn't know how to do it, you found somebody who did, asked them how to do it, and then you did it. Right. Well, that's what I did, and so I never I've never ever felt, and it comes directly from him. I've never ever felt like there's anything I can't do. Just, just go do it, and so I'm best when I'm in over my head, and so that's what I did. So I got my house mostly finished. I was like, I'm done with young life. I bought a house across the street that was from uh, about 18, or no, actually it was up around the corner on Bank Street. It was from about 18, I don't know, 1860 or so. Renovated it, sold it, bought another one, did the same thing. And and these were really cool federal-style townhouses. Then I got a guy came to me, had a beautiful Victorian row house, and so I restored that. And it was at that time that I said, okay, Julie, my business is going to get too big for us to be able to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to leave now. We left. We came to North Carolina. Well, you, you know, they're not a lot, relatively speaking, there's just not a lot of that kind of opportunity. And so I started building houses. And since then, I've done everything. I've built houses, office buildings, retail, industrial projects, you name it. I moved, I moved I, for my town. I moved a historic house down the road. Okay. Wow. So running your business your family you said your kids are grown but and then you're spending a lot of time these days in raleigh legislating how do you balance all of that well the first term was very very difficult i had the biggest project in my career going on it was a it was a fifty-eight thousand square foot freezer minus 10 degrees wait what? Okay. it's an acre and a half it's for just food distribution oh wow and um so I had to had I contracted with some folks that helped. We all worked. To, there's a couple of companies that we all worked together to get through the downturn. So I went back to the some of those people and said, "Here's a deal. I got elected because you know you don't know, especially the kind of race I had. I mean, <laughs> so I got elected. So they helped me get that project finished. Um, I had a couple other little projects, and I just got my last CO about three weeks ago, certificate of occupancy, and so I'm not building at this point. I've got some other businesses that are giving me some passive income so I can come and do this. And it's just, like I said, it was just, it's just perfect timing for me to step in and give um, of my time, my talent, my service. And I don't have to worry as much about that stuff. I still have stuff I have to do when I go home, but it's not like I'm overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed the first term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're a high energy guy. I've noticed that in the building, you're constantly working, you're chatting with anyone. Mm-hmm. I imagine going from that dynamic building houses, renovating houses, this project, that project, I bet sometimes the pace of the General Assembly must frustrate a guy like you. I was just in the Speaker's office yesterday, and I said, you know, (laughs) being self-employed, running my own businesses and stuff, when you run your own business, your phone rings when there's a problem. Mm -hmm. It trains you to be a problem solver. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I get paid for production. Golly, it doesn't work that way in government. No. I mean, it just drives me nuts. I'm like, good grief. Yeah. Listen, let's get a few business people here. Get everybody else out of the way. We'll get in a room. We'll have it worked out in an hour. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So I really, I really struggle with that and, and being and, and having patience with that. And my colleagues are tremendously gracious to me. <laughs> <laughs> Patient with you. 
<laughs> Patient and gracious. <laughs> Good. Good. You have such a heart for service. I have to ask, what is your favorite part about being a state representative? What I enjoy the most is when I get to go and um, in my district and just meet people and talk to people. I just love that. And then as we, as I said earlier, I love to hear people's stories. And so one of the things that I've done is try to learn about my colleagues' stories, um, which are really surprising, as you guys know. Mm-hmm. And then um, at the same time, when I'm, as I get to know more and more people in my district, you know, I like to hear their perspective or their story. You know, we went to areas where we knocked on doors. We knocked on the first time about 7,000 doors. And it was interesting. People were like, well, no one's ever asked me my opinion. Hmm. I said, well, tell me your opinion. And then listen, listen. You know, there's, we spend too much time telling and we just need to listen. You know, there's a, um, a phrase that I used to use with the people that worked with me and it's not mine. I stole it from somebody. Uh, but I used to do with the people that worked with me in the city. I said, you have to understand when love is felt, the message is heard. Yeah. We want to move to the message, you know, here's how it should be. Well, maybe not. Maybe if you knew a little more about what's going on, your solution might not be the right solution. Any aspiration plan to run for higher office? Has that ever been in your sights? So for me, it's really about service. My entire life I've served. Everything that I've done politically has come to me. I've not sought it. Okay. And so what I would say to that is if the opportunity came to me, it'd be hard for me not to. But what I want to be more than anything at this point in my life is I want to be an effective legislator. I want to do stuff that will have positive impact in dealing with what we're doing. So if you could change one thing in our politics, what would it be? If I could change one thing, it would be to help everybody on both sides to understand or, or, or make it foremost that we're dealing with people and we need to seek solutions over politics. Mm. There's a lot of positions that are taken simply because it's the politics, but it doesn't necessarily change anything. We've got a lot of, listen, we have a lot of things that we know don't work. Right. Because we've done them, but yeah. then we don't abandon them. And I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't working. So, you know, when I when I was running my business, if it didn't work, you know, we, we always would do, you know, what, you know, look at what we're doing. Why are we doing what we're doing? And is it being effective? Well, you don't do that in government, but we need to. And so if there was one thing that I could change, it would be having a way to implement, okay, let's back up. Let's look at what we're doing. What's working. What's not working. If it's not working, let's get rid of it and figure out how we make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you're a Ronald Reagan fan. He said the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely. And he also said, that, what was it? The nine most terrifying words in the English language is I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Oftentimes. Well, representative Jeff Zinger, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your service in the North Carolina house. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you guys. And I really appreciate it. I enjoy your podcast and I really appreciate you guys. And thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Listening to Representative Zinger talk about poverty and talk about his history and talk about the work that he's doing now in the General Assembly. A conservative Republican who really has a concern about institutional poverty, especially in inner cities. It reminded me of a Republican that I just loved and admired as a kid. Former Congressman Jack Kemp. 1988, he ran for president in the primary. He lost. He would go on to serve as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President George H.W. Bush. Representative Kemp, just like Representative Zinger, really applying these conservative free market principles in addressing poverty. I think oftentimes many Republicans Maybe it's, you know, you could say it's the fault of messaging. Maybe you could say that uh, the communication isn't there. But sometimes there is this message that maybe there is not a concern for this, but not the case with many Republicans like Zinger, like Congressman Kemp, but totally fascinated by Representative Zinger's focus in the General Assembly, the work he's done. Appreciate him sitting down and talking to us about his life. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. Before I read the Tweet of the Week this week, do we need to talk about... Twitter being rebranded? Yeah, is it X? Yes. So is it X of the week, or is the X just the... I was thinking Z of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is... How would you pronounce X-E-E-T? I don't know, but I think if you have to ask that question, it's probably not a good branding idea. (laughs) Right now, let's call it Tweet of the Week. For now. The tweet of the week is from Andrew Carter. He is at underscore Andrew Carter on Twitter. He's a writer and reporter at the NNO. His tweet says, A story about peanuts and baseball, but also about one Northampton County farm and a factory that's the only thing left in a tiny northeastern North Carolina town. So the story is that most of the peanuts sold at MLB stadiums come from North Carolina. I miss eating peanuts at the General Assembly. I know, the nice little bags with the North Carolina state flag. That's like my ideal lobby job is to lobby for North Carolina peanuts. I love peanuts. Mm -hmm. I love North Carolina ag. Mm -hmm. I would love to be there. And they seem to have a ton of those peanuts on hand. They do. And they come in those little white bags and they are three quarters of an ounce of peanuts. And if you go to a legislator's office, chances are they have them there. Now, my source is going to the speaker's office. Grace Irvin always says, grab one, grab two, have as many as you like. I love going in there for peanuts. Senator Tillis has them too. Exactly right. Great 
product. I, you know, there are so many great products, and we talked about a couple of weeks ago some of the things that we're prideful about in North Carolina, but showing up at the General Assembly and saying, I am here to represent Krispy Kreme donuts. Yeah. How joyful would that be? Except that people at Krispy Kreme never seem to be joyful. <laughs> <laughs> they seem angry, and I have to assume it's because they're up at 3 a.m. Yeah. But the the first line in this article says, In a little corner of the northeastern part of the state, millions of pounds of peanuts begin their dreams of making it to Major League Baseball stadiums. Mm-hmm. How do we, who are we to tell them those peanuts what their <laughs> dreams are? <laughs> consumed by people and enter into the digestive system that can't be very good for the peanuts I shouldn't mean, the peanuts the peanuts dream should be escaping and surviving <laughs> yeah that mr peanut you think he wants to be eaten by somebody mr peanut just wants to live a life with his top hat and cane <laughs> yeah that's kind of gone away hasn't it i don't know maybe not I think of the M&M peanuts. Those guys have personality, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And there's even like a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been to many baseball games this season? I went to a Durham Bulls game and I did eat peanuts there. Thank you you very much. You know, I would say that eating peanuts at a baseball game, truly an American thing, you know? And... In that same respect, I saw this trend of like highs that you're chasing. And so like that's a high, you know, you're at a baseball game eating peanuts. And so I brought this up even to my mom yesterday, like a high that you're chasing, Mm -hmm. like the last day of school, you know, like that's a high Mm -hmm. or um, seeing someone open a gift that I got them and genuinely like it. Like, that's a high I'm chasing. What's yours? I love it when I'm at a restaurant and I'm hungry and I'm waiting for my food. Oh, yeah. And the magical feeling of I'm going to go to the bathroom, wash my hands, and I love it when you come out of the bathroom and you look at your table and the waiter or waitress is delivering your food. That is magic right there it's like i went to the bathroom i'm coming back to my table and here's my food that is a wonderful wonderful feeling okay so let's say you come back to your table your food is sitting at your table do you take a picture of it nope i don't like especially if i'm at a restaurant now if someone has prepared me food at home like if you've prepared me food i will take a photograph yeah of you've it. taken a lot of pictures of my food but if i'm at a restaurant I am not one to pull out my camera at dinner and take a photo of my food to put on Facebook and Twitter. I am just going to live in the moment there and eat my food. Those are kind of fighting words. If you're with me and you bring out your camera because we're taking a photo of what someone at a restaurant brought you, it's just no. I'm ready to cut you off because... You say, oh, take out your camera. First of all, your phone is already out. You are on your phone all the time. And people forget, but I don't, that when we were in D.C. a couple years back, you were on your phone reading something and you dropped your phone into your macaroni and cheese. (laughs) Okay, so I might do that, but I'm not taking a photo of said macaroni and cheese. Well, what's a little more, what's less in the moment, taking a picture or just fully being on your phone during dinner? 
You know I'm opposed to that. Yeah, well. Okay, so, all right. So I have some things that get on your nerves. Taking photographs of your food at a restaurant gets on my nerves. I know me being on my phone gets on your nerves. What are some other things? We've talked, we've kind of gone through this in some past episodes, but we have a lot of things that get on our nerves, right? What What are some other things that get on your nerves, Sky? I mean, in this Zoom era, when someone says, we're going to start the meeting with a fun fact about yourself. Oh, yeah. It's weird because at that exact moment, my camera goes out. <laughs> <laughs> It goes. Like, I'd rather not. You know, uh, I I don't have a fun fact. I don't care what Jimmy says, and you know, I don't really need to be part of this. So, what's interesting about me is that you know, I'm an early person. Mm-hmm. I'm early to everything, but I will not be early on a Zoom because I don't want to make small talk, mm-hmm. and also because I hope to miss the icebreaker portion. Icebreakers are awful, and you know what's even more awful? I want the person to die who says the oh, following death at a meeting at the beginning good of good morning those people the people who you you said it good morning and everyone goes good morning and he goes no let's try that again good morning and then you're supposed to say good morning like please stop doing that <laughs> stop it no one wants to do that. I have to. It's awful. <laughs> that moment of anxiety that you're just describing, having to do that again, it's just, that's just painful. But like at church, when they say, now greet the people around you, I'm like, <laughs> I don't have hands. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's the start. There is something I know that you hate at the end of a conversation. And that's when you say goodbye to somebody and then you either have to walk the same way as them Mm -hmm. or you run back into them. You just told me the other day at the GA you hated that. It's the worst. So I was talking to somebody and I said goodbye. And then she's going the same direction as I am. We're walking to Sine Diner. And we're sitting there. We had already said goodbye to each other, but we find ourselves walking together. You don't want to get into another conversation because that requires you to say goodbye again. And so you're kind of stuck with explaining, oh, I forgot something at Sine Diner. I guess you're going there too. The other option is to just stop and let them walk. That would be what I would do. Yeah, go to the bathroom. I've done that too. I really don't know what right or wrong is here. I'm interested in maybe what other people think. So um, what do you do? I just I just don't like it. Once you say goodbye, say goodbye. And it's done. Don't talk to them again. Or you could just see if you walk away and then you run into them again. You're like, oh, see ya. You know what I, so I go on a walk every morning, right? And sometimes you pass the same person twice. Um, you say, hi, good morning. The first time it's like, do I say good morning? I like am in my head, like, do I have to talk to them again? Right. Or do I just ignore them? Or what are they going to, are they going to ignore me? Or I'll just wave. I don't know. I'm just really in my head about that sort of thing. One goodbye a think, day is all you, you get. enough. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening. Give us some feedback. We'd love to hear how you deal with a goodbye situation. In this case, we're going to say goodbye. We'll talk to you next week. Please remember to do politics better.